0: Emma, Chidi looked up, very shocked at that clap just now. He did not appreciate it. And hi, Chidi, our guest for today. Here's producer Chidi, the anxious chihuahua. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, I can't imagine a better guest for a podcast that requires us to sit still for like an hour and a half than um, an anxious chihuahua called Chidi. Yeah,
0: it's very good. He's, um. very, he's a very good boy. He's asleep at the minute. Or at least he's still pretending.
1: I can't see his eyes. (laughs) So we will see if he decides to get involved with uh, talking about history and how history is sexy. Yeah,
0: yeah.
1: Um, See if he has any opinions. Yeah, he might have opinions on um, pre-colonial Africa. Who knows? Who knows? When he has opinions,
0: he has them very strongly. So we will. We will know.
1: Are you talking about his tiny little fart?
0: I'm also talking about his opinions on regarding foxes, which he is (laughs) stridently opposed to. Wow. Yeah. Dog racism. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, Who are we, Janina? We are Dr. Emma Southern and uh, not Dr. Janina Matthewson, and we do things and write things and talk about history.
1: Yeah. That's the most fun bit. Yeah. Um, And today we're kind of doing a carry-on from um, last week's episode because we didn't have time to fit it in, but I was insistent that I wanted to talk about it. (laughs) So um, the question is technically still from Lioness Feather and is tell me about great Arabic libraries. Um, But we're going to be talking about libraries in um, Saharan and sub-Saharan Africa, (laughs) uh, specifically talking about the library of Timbuktu in... Marley. Excellent. And I don't know anything. You're just going to tell me all
0: about it because I tried to read up on it and my brain didn't work.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's all right. Yeah. i having a COVID day. That's okay. A COVID mental health day. Yeah. It happens. Um, But that's okay because I had a great time reading about it. So nobody knows anything about it. I only learned about it maybe a year or so ago when for some reason that I now forget I got really... um, into trying desperately to find histories of Africa Mm -hmm. um, or just of any country in Africa um, that were not just colonial or modern histories or post-colonial histories um, that were about ancient and medieval Africa. And they are quite hard to find. But I found one book which has a really fascinating premise, but the man who wrote it is the most boring man alive. (laughs) (laughs) It's almost a year to read it because I could only read one chapter at a time before just really, like, it was a genuine effort to stay awake while I was reading it. Um, It's called The Golden Rhinoceros by François Xavier Favelle. Mm -hmm. Um, Because there is a lot more French work on um, sub-Saharan Africa than there is English language work, um, for whatever reason. Uh, Yeah, but it is a struggle to get through.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So, interesting subject
1: matter, boringly... Done. God yeah it should be illegal to write so boring. Right? <laughs> um and but that has lots of stuff in it that was very interesting. Mm-hmm. Um and one of the things that it kind of mentions in passing is this idea of um Timbuktu libraries um and Timbuktu as a, a center of learning. Um <laughs> which is something that I think is completely the antithesis of what you think about when you think about african history yeah um which is that for a very long time up until maybe the past like mm, 10 years um and even that is probably optimistic um for a very long time there has been this notion amongst european thinkers and writers and historians that africa has no history you don't um, say that white people being yeah. racist about africa <laughs> <laughs> no um, done with the feather. <laughs> Yeah and for it was like one of the things that is said about sub-Saharan Africa sp- particularly um is that they are no- they were illiterate <laughs> societies they had no literacy mm-hmm. and that they had no history and i found this this is a quote from 1963 mm-hmm. uh so not that long ago uh Hugh Trevor-Roper who is a very famous historian said on the BBC mm-hmm. Perhaps in the future there will be some African history to teach, but at present there is none. There is only the history of Europeans in Africa and the rest is darkness. Jesus. Jesus, BBC. And that was uh, the mainstream general opinion Mm -hmm. of Africa decided because whenever Europeans turned up in Africa, they just decided not to see um, (laughs) what was existing there. Uh, they were not interested, and so they did not see it. This can't be history. It's um, not even in English. Yeah, uh, and it's not. It's not what we recognize as being um, as being writing. It's not what we recognize as being um, a culture, and yeah. therefore, it is not a culture. Uh, so, there is this idea that the whole of Africa was just um, people living in mud huts, and then the British and French came and Civilized the Belgians it. and murdered everybody for their own good. Right. Yep. However, that is not true. And it's not even in the slightest bit true. Um, and Africans <laughs> have always known it. Um, and very gradually, it is being possible now in um, European languages to write about how it is not possible. Um, and one of the places that is receiving probably. Um, the most amount of my attention is Timbuktu. It was uh well it is in Mali, mm-hmm. which is in West Africa. It's um a bit from the sea, but West Africa is Sahara. Um, like bang in the middle of the Saharan desert. Yeah. Um it is desert in every direction. <laughs> um except the river Niger runs through it and it's in a um the floodplains of the River Niger. Okay. So it is if you are travelling across the Sahara from east to west to west to east or north to south or south to north, it is one of the stopping places, basically. Yeah. Um and it was founded in the eleventh century. Um, this is the story that they themselves tell this is a story that was written down in like the 14th century mm-hmm. about themselves um, because as it turns out they were happily writing their own histories <laughs> uh, <laughs> that the French did not recognise um, except the bits they stole they stole some of them Um Anyway, uh, it's founded in the 11th century by, they say, nomads, um, who kind of gradually became settled because it's a great nomadic area. Mm-hmm. Um, it, At the time it is founded, it is quite a late city. Um, there is a great Ghanaian empire, so Ghana is uh, just like to the west of it. Um, mm-hmm. The Great Ghanaian Empire was the great ancient empire of West Africa. Um, it lasted for like a thousand years and was covered like a huge amount of territory and controlled quite a lot of that Atlantic coast um, and mm-hmm. was massive. Eventually that collapsed and the Malian Empire kind of grew. Um, but in between those two periods, Timbuktu was founded as a, as a trading post, basically, as sure. a place to stop and trade Um, and because you have trade coming up the and down the Niger River Mm -hmm. into North Africa and then you have um, trade going across and you have from a lot coming from Morocco Mm -hmm. um, and Mauritania and Libya and um, lots and lots of goods are moving up and down. Um, Mostly those goods are salt, gold, um, ivory and enslaved people, sure. Um, that are going like salt and gold all comes from Africa, comes from um, Saharan, sub Saharan Africa. And the reason that the Ghanaian Empire was so massive is because it has all of these gold mines, sure. Um, so a lot of wealth uh, coming out of there, yeah. Um, but uh, this kind of goes to Europe, but Europe. Pays pays no, little to no attention about where it comes from. As far as Europeans are concerned, <laughs> they are buying them from um, like Berber and North African um, and Arabic traders. Mm-hmm. Um, and those traders are going in like down and buying things and then coming back up and they're exchanging goods and stuff from um, from Europe and Arabia and Asia. Mm-hmm. But the Europeans have no further thoughts on the matter (laughs) (laughs) just don't trouble themselves yeah yeah um so like arabic and berber um and north african like what we can now consider to be the like islamic empire basically Mm -hmm. is selling europe lots of stuff because the islamic empire is a merchant empire as we said last time they're not that um they're not like into standing armies that much and yeah. fighting. They don't hold their or grow a lot of territory through um military activity. They spread um after their initial battles largely through cultural exchange mm-hmm. and trading. Yeah. Um and they're very, very good at it. And this is also how Islam spreads into uh West Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa and East Africa, mm-hmm. um, because traders and merchants um, and travellers are travel are constantly yeah. um, cycling in and out. Yeah. Um. Sure. And so the Islamic Empire, if you are to consider it fully, um, includes Mali and Mauritania and um, large parts of Africa, mm-hmm. uh, which um, people do not consider. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Because people don't pay attention. Um, Also largely because there was a very um, fairly deliberate attempt during the colonial period to separate the concepts of North Africa and South Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa as if they are separate and culturally distinct and therefore it is totally fine to enslave people from Sub-Saharan Africa because they are culturally and completely distinct from the people of North Africa who are not enslaving
0: okay sure so we just want to be really distinct about who we're oppressing and in what way
1: yeah exactly Mm -hmm. um and it's all part of the creation of the concept of sub-saharan africa is um part of the creation of people who are not really people right and so um that is how north africa has also become kind of split off as a as an islamic place and not uh, and therefore worthy of marginally more respect than um, right. the white people tend to give sub-Saharan Africa. Sure. Anyway, by the time we get to the 11th century, uh, West Africa is largely Muslim, um, its own specific form of Islam, mm-hmm. um, whereby they, they get into trouble every so often because people come from Arabia and then are like, what the hell is going on here? No one's got any clothes on. <laughs> uh, <laughs> they are also um, wildly, wildly rich. Because they have all of the gold, and they sell all of the gold, Mm -hmm. um, and they have a great time selling all of the gold. Um, The first person from Timbuktu who makes an impact on the European world um, is a guy called Mansa Musa, Mm -hmm. you might have heard of. He is probably the most famous person, if you were going to talk about the Middle Ages, the kind of medieval... Um, Africa. Mm-hmm. He might be the person that you know of. Mansa means like sultan or king. Yeah. Um, Mansa Musa mm-hmm. becomes Mansa uh, because his predecessor, who was a great, a uh, kind of expansionist, mm-hmm. uh, made his way to the Atlantic and then decided that he wanted to see uh, what was on the other side of the ocean of the North Atlantic and mm-hmm. um, put together a navy to go and have a wee look. And then decided, ludicrously, that he was going to lead the expedition himself. Sure. Yeah. Why not? <laughs> so he put Musa in charge while he was gone, and then never came back.
0: Great. I mean, not surprising. <laughs> Often happens. It's a dangerous thing to Fair go on a big, ex- a, uh, a big expedition like that. It's not, it's not yeah, safe.
1: Like, just sailing out into the unknown yeah. with... a. I admire the confidence on two levels. One, I admire that he thought he was going to come back. Mm-hmm. Um, That he thought that he was going to go off, discover something, and then come back again. Love that for him. Mm-hmm. More than anything, I admire the idea that he thought he could put someone else in charge of his empire, and then... That he would be able to come back after an unknown amount of time that would definitely be years, and that person would go, So good to see you. I'll go back to my normal life.
0: Yep, I'll just re- return to my garden or whatever.
1: Yeah, exactly. I'll grow some capital Because that <laughs> <laughs> Cause, uh, historically, like, and just in general, from a human psychology perspective, is not something that people do very regularly. No, but it <laughs> is. Seem,
0: it's, hip- it's nice. It's nice when people have that sort of optimism. And faith in humanity.
1: I would quite like an alternate history whereby he returns, um, and they have to have an awkward conversation about it. Yeah, um, yeah. Because I, and I feel like at best it was probably quite awkward because like he's temporarily in charge, but at some point everybody has to acknowledge that this guy is never returning. I yeah. When did that? Like, ha- you... At what point do you just be- claim, you know? sovereignty do you go in immediately and are like look i'm the king now everybody has to do as i say and we'll cross that bridge when we come to it if he comes back or do you like hang about for a couple of years like oh, i don't want to do anything too permanent yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah i mean i guess we see this a lot in just in european history as well when someone comes in when you know the heir is still a baby so you have a regent, and they yeah. vary wildly in terms of how much they are like i am it now it's all me and or how much they are you know content to just be sort of warming
1: warming the chair and then pushed back Mm. yeah musa almost immediately um was like well that's he's not coming back." (laughs) Um, (laughs) which you can't argue um, he didn't so (laughs) he didn't Uh, so he got on with doing more expansion Mm -hmm. and more becoming very very rich sure um And he then, the way that he... This would have kind of been an African history that um, nobody knew about except he decided to go on Hajj. um, And because they're all Muslim, he decided that he would go to visit Mecca. Sure. um, Which is the pilgrimage that um, Muslims um, undertake, if they're able to. And he took with him... Um, according to the Egyptian sources that wrote about it, because he caused a scandal Ooh. in Cairo, um, he turned up we in love Cairo. Scandal. <laughs> this is thirteen twenty-four. Mm-hmm. So, like in Europe, this is like Black Plague era. <laughs> <laughs> like he rolled up in Cairo out of nowhere with sixty thousand men in his retinue. Mm-hmm. That's a wild amount of people. I can't imagine that many people. I know. (laughs) Including 12,000 enslaved people, each of whom was carrying gold. Uh Uh-huh. And 5,000 camels, each of which was also carrying gold. Uh Uh-huh. He was dressed entirely in Persian brocade and Chinese silk. Sure. I am Um, so far picturing the
0: parade from
1: Aladdin. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And he was so generous Um, uh, with both the stuff that he bought in Cairo Mm -hmm. and the amount of money, amount of, like, pure gold that he gave away just to people, that he crashed the economy (laughs) and devalued the price and worth of gold (laughs) for decades to come. (laughs) Oh, no! (laughs) And later, um, like... Uh, 30 years later a guy called Ibn Battuta travelled through and they were still talking about it that's that's beautiful
0: I mean it's not, it's very bad but it's also I don't know, there's something about generosity just gone wild and
1: (laughs) (laughs) and just causing trouble yeah (laughs) um so he uh he did that he goes to mecca he does his pilgrimage um along the way he he picks up a lot of ideas about the world and he picks up a lot of ambitions that he wants in his empire um to have a giant mosque Mm -hmm. that will rival the mosques that he has seen and he wants um scholarship and art and um academia basically <laughs> within his home so he builds he brings back with him some andalusian poets and some architects to build him a great mosque which still exists mm-hmm. um and uh, he starts building and collecting um manuscripts and drawing scholars to the area sure. um building a um, madrasa and encouraging people to come to Timbuktu. Timbuktu is not the capital of his empire um, but um, it is the place that he for some reason decides that is going to be the place where he keeps things. Yeah. Um, in the 1350s, so Ibn Battuta again, he's Moroccan <laughs> um, and he is a guy who travels all around the world. He travels from China. Um, I say the world, he does not really bother with Europe um, because... In the 1350s, why would you? Yeah, no reason. Um, 1348, I think, is the height of the Black Death, um, like the worst year. Yeah, stay out, um, stay out. Or the earliest. Yeah, so he's not going anywhere near them. Um, but he travels to China, he travels to India, he travels to Timbuktu. He travels to Gao, which is the capital. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he travels to Timbuktu. It takes him two months to travel um, on camel from Morocco to Timbuktu. Mm-hmm. Um, because you have to do it in stages, and each stage is like 10 days of carrying your own water, carrying your own food in the desert. Jeez. Like, um, this is what trade in and into um, and out of Africa involves, and around Africa involves days worth of trekking through the desert um, until you reach... A stopping point, and then trekking from there for another ten days, and then trekking from there for another. Um, it does not and sound it. fun. It's extremely unfun. Yeah, and this is why Europeans were so very, very bad. At it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, mostly because they were fundamentally unprepared. Yeah. Um. He. Uh. He d- goes to Timbuktu. He wrote one paragraph about it in his entire book. Um. It took me ages to find that paragraph. <laughs> uh, but he is just like. Timbuktu exists, and the women wear veils, the end. Um, <laughs> Helpful. He writes loads about Gao, which he's not keen on at all. Mm-hmm. Um, the Musa at the time is called Musa Muhammad, uh, Musa, Mansa, sorry, it's called Mansa Muhammad, um, and Muhammad doesn't give him enough presents, and so he's really down <laughs> on uh, the Malian Empire, basically.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, fair enough. Um, I don't like
1: it when people don't give me presents, so... He's like, I hung around for ages, And then at one point he, like, marches into the Sultan's... Um, the Mansa's palace mm-hmm. and is like, I have been here for four months and I have received one present <laughs> and people have, have barely given me anything and I've not been invited to dinner and, and I don't like any Quite frankly, your how dare you? Yeah, pretty much. Um, the, the hospitality apparently was not up to his standards. Mm. Um, but he... Uh, yeah, so then he goes to Timbuktu, and then he moves on um, and goes over into Mauritania. But he is unimpressed. But at the time, there was already a good madrasa there. And there was a mosque and um, there was the beginnings of this um, literary culture of manuscripts and the preservation of and the sharing of knowledge. <laughs> sure. Um then what happens is we had, we're going to take a tight, slight dip in the fortunes of Timbuktu, which is going well so far, <laughs> um, which is that uh, a guy called Sunni Ali, um, who is uh, the founder of the Songhai Empire, Songhai are a ethnic group within Mali, <laughs> got involved with some kind of internal politics and then took Timbuktu under... A military force and then proceeded to absolutely rampage through the Malian Empire, um, destroy it, and build its own. Sure. Um, this involved basically setting fire to Timbuktu. Um, <laughs> cool. Um, there's always, always got to be
0: one. Someone's always got to come and just like burn everything down. Just,
1: I'll be honest, it happens a fair amount. Yeah. Um, uh, and things are pretty bad um, for about thirty years until. Um, the Askia Dynasty of the Songhai Empire starts um, in 1493, mm-hmm. um, so end of the 15th century, and the Askia Dynasty, particularly the first of those kings, is very, very interested in um, scholarship and in in that Islamic tradition of sharing and developing new knowledge mm-hmm. and discussing. And he starts pouring money into Timbuktu. Um, and building mosques um and building he builds a new mosque so there's two already mm-hmm. in um in two what first is a 10th century mosque it's, um sankore it's called the mosque of Sankore. um that's like the oldest and most prestigious mansa musa built one uh, which i'm going to mm, absolutely butcher the pronunciation <laughs> of it's called jingabera mm-hmm. um uh, that was founded in 1327 and finished at the, uh, after his reign. Um, so, And that's like the great mosque. Um, and then there was another one founded um, under Songhai called Sidi Yaha, mm-hmm. um, which is named after a um, great teacher called Sidi Yaha Atadalesi, um, who is also known as, according to a guy called Al-Sadi, the perfected pole. The pole is in... P O L E stick, I think. Oh, right, um, okay, sure. Uh, he's definitely not from Poland, <laughs> and it's not like a, um, a po- like a political poll. It's not a, a no. survey of the populace. No, it's definitely P O L E. Mm. Um, and I was like, I don't, I don't know what that means, but that's good. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so what we see then is basically the same thing that's happened in Baghdad, because he's pouring so much money and time and effort and focus into it. Um, you get twelve big families, and these twelve families, a lot of them still exist um, in Mali and are still like prominent families, um, which we will get to in a bit. Uh, mm-hmm. They, you get that competitive nature of book collecting, book selling, and book creation. Um, and then um, mm-hmm. as you get more scholars come, more students come, uh, which then brings more scholars, which then brings... And people travel um, yeah. from all over Africa and from Arabia um, to come to Timbuktu to learn there. Yeah.
0: So it's a very similar situation exactly. to what we saw last time where you just create an environment that... Scholars want to come to, and then they come. You build it. If you build it, they will
1: come. They come in their thousands. There is mm. this thing. It creates this thing, which is called the University of Sankore. Um, but it is not really a university mm-hmm. in that sense, that it is a centralised um situation. What Timbuktu becomes is a lot of individual scholars who are all attached to the mosques. Um who have to <laughs> this is my favorite bit actually about them they have to get a license to prove that they can teach specific texts um so they have to prove their expertise <laughs> with specific texts or specific areas um in order to be allowed to teach them which i think is just delightful um but then they are mostly yeah. running yeah. <laughs> those classes out of their own homes um and maybe within the mosques. But. Sure. Um, their classes are kind of spread across so i read a bunch of stuff that said there were like 180 universities in in timbuktu in the 15th 16th century um but as far as i can tell from Mm -hmm. reading i read a very good book um by uh, a guy called usman umar Kane called beyond timbuktu an intellectual history of the muslim of Muslim West Africa Um, and he's like they're they're not universities they're Mm -hmm. not like centralized Um, it's not an institution and they're not institutions they are individual scholars so it's like 180 houses in the city um, which is still a lot of houses Sure, (laughs) Um, are are teaching various things they are teaching um, mathematics um lots of re- lots of sufi religious scholarship sufism is really big in africa which is um mysticism islamic mysticism um they mm-hmm. are uh doing lots of science lots of astronomy and astrology Um there was a very famous work which came out which um worked mm-hmm. out using the position of the stars the exact direction you should be um praying in order to be uh, praying in the right direction so how Um, lots of Greek philosophy Mm -hmm. as well and medicine and logic um, and a lot of other stuff that um, we saw last time so we're reading Galen they're reading Hippocrates they're reading Ptolemy um, and they're also producing lots and lots of books Uh, would you like to know some books that they produced definitely um, so one um, is called The Tariq Al-Sudan and is a 38 book history and sociology of life in the Songhai Empire going through it city by city, um, which uh, includes uh, a two books worth of lists of scholars and how good they are. Mm-hmm. Um, lots and lots of people working on Islamic legal theory and practice. Um, and my personal favourite, however, is a book on advising men on sexual engagement with their women. <laughs> Was uh, it good advice? It, uh, well, I mean, basically, it is about how it's very important that your wife enjoys it as well. Um, good! And how to, basically, a guide to how to last longer and get your lady to come. <laughs> Excellent, I approve. Yeah. Um, admittedly a fair amount of it involves praying and drinking powdered bull's testicles but (laughs) it is the thought that counts (laughs) Um, and yeah so lots of that kind of thing Um, the most important scholar who comes out of um, during this time is a guy called Ahmed Baba Um, Mm -hmm. Ahmed Baba al-Masufi al al Timbuktu. he is born in 1556 he only dresses in black um, and also made a bit of a thing of wearing loads and loads of black eyeshadow. He was a goth. Yeah, so he's a big old Sufi goth. <laughs> <laughs> he is known alternately as the black one mm-hmm. um, because presumably he was always lurking out of corners wearing black and the unique pearl of his time, which has a very different flavour. <laughs> I mean, you can get black pearls, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah. He uh, spent uh, his life writing lots and lots of books on lots and lots of things from astronomical treaties. He wrote 60 books during his <laughs> lifetime. Um, but his lifetime was cut short. Um so he would have written a lot lot more but he wrote a biographical dictionary uh, that's massive um he wrote commentaries on the quran he wrote astronomical treatises he wrote a book uh, on the ethics of slavery um <laughs> which is considered to be very progressive because he argues that um basically that people there is no such thing as slavery based on race as a slave that is um like as a race that is suited for slavery, basically. Right, so there's no Um, such thing as as people who are insufficiently people to not be slaves. Exactly, and Mm -hmm. he also argues... He doesn't really argue against slavery, but he basically argues that um, it's not very nice being a slave and we should feel very sorry for them, and therefore you you shouldn't treat enslaved people badly. Um, You should be nice to them. Right, so he didn't say don't have
0: slaves, but he did say... Being a slave is bad. (laughs) Yeah.
1: He also wrote a book about the ethics of tobacco usage, um, which shows the massive extent of trade, global trade at this time, um, which is that tobacco, which comes from the Americas, was widely being used in uh, Mali um, in the mid-16th century. Um, And he... uh, there were a lot of conversations at this time about tobacco and whether it was um, addictive. And if it was addictive, was it... A, should you be using it um, or was it in the same category as alcohol? Um, Interesting. And, um, should it be therefore be considered to be harem? Um, so uh, there are a lot of various ways. He decides it's not addictive and therefore it was fine to use it. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> which he was wrong about, but you he can't he be wrong was about. very wrong. No, yeah, I mean he didn't have you know a, a lab to test yeah. his theories. So, um, so he's writing. He has a personal library of one thousand six hundred books, um, mm-hmm. which he considered to be very very small. Uh, uh, but the reason that we know the size of his personal library is that he was kidnapped um, and was uh, taken into slavery by North Africans during a uh, attack on Timbuktu uh, mm-hmm. by the Moroccan Sultan. So what happened is the Moroccan Sultan, for some reason, just decided... Timbuktu is having this 100 glorious years of scholarship and peace and gloriousness. He thinks, mm-hmm. I would like that. Because... <laughs> so I shall take it. Yeah, so he basically writes to the... Um, the mansa and says or the sultan and says I would like Timbuktu please <laughs> and they go no <laughs> um, at which point he invades um, obviously sure. uh, he uh, and he kidnaps a whole bunch of people, takes them back into slavery and one of them um, is Ahmed Baba who he um, just sort of keeps uh... <laughs> sure, sure. Uh, why not which is not uncommon. One of the best um, discussions of Timbuktu that we have and most best descriptions of what Timbuktu is like um, comes from a guy known in Europe as Leo Africanus, mm-hmm. uh, which was not his name. Okay. His name was Al-Hassan Ibn Muhammad Al-Wazan Al-Fassi. That's uh, very different. It is very different. So he was an Andalusian um, Berber. Uh, mm-hmm. So, what well, is Tends to be called, in some of the books that I read, a Spanish maw. Sure. Um, but he is a North African. So he was a diplomat. He visited Timbuktu as a representative of the King of Morocco, the Moroccan Sultan. Um, he mm-hmm. was based in Fez. Uh, and he, on his way back, was captured um, and enslaved by Christian pirates
0: mm-hmm.
1: who were then... Um, So delighted at his uh, his learning and his literacy um, that they took him to the Pope um, and sold him to the Pope. Sure. I Um, am worried that the Pope was buying people. (laughs) The Pope was buying loads of people. The Pope was so impressed by how clever and um, uh, erudite he was in that kind of... Way we can imagine him saying something like, "Gosh, you're very well spoken for a black person." Um, sure. He freed him, gave him a limited form of freedom. He freed him officially, but kept him at the Vatican, called, and gave him a European name, and then got him to write a massive survey of his travels of like, which was published as a survey of Africa. Sure. Um, which was better, I suppose, than being generally enslaved, but it's still not brilliant. So, um, ideal. I would yeah. prefer not. Yes. So, yeah. he wrote a description of Timbuktu, which he called Tomboto. Um, and he wrote The rich king of Tomboto hath many plates and scepters of gold, some weigh 1,300 pounds. He keeps a magnific- magnificent and well furnished court. He always has 3,000 horsemen and a great number of footmen that shoot, shoot poisoned arrows. Here are a great store of doctors, judges, priests, and other learned men that are bountifully maintained at the king's expense, and hither are brought diverse manuscripts of written book out written books out of barbaric which are sold for more money than any other merchandise. Huh. Sure. What people heard was less the bit about people writing books and, books and being uh, very smart and clever and learned. Yeah, and selling books for lots of money. What they heard was plates and scepters of gold, some of which weigh 1,300 pounds.
0: <laughs> I wish I could say I was surprised. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Interestingly, you'll notice that they are um, writing books out of barbaric, um, and that is because the languages that these works were being written in was not just Arabic. They're writing largely in Arabic, but they are also translating, and they have a lot of translators there um, Mm -hmm. who are transliterating, so using Arabic letters to write local languages, of which there are a lot. But we have lots of languages like Tamashek, Fulani, Hausa, Bambara and Soninke and other um, languages that um, we don't have any other written examples of um, mm. are all being written here because people, there are people from all over and they're all speaking different languages um, and yeah. they're all writing in different languages and they are sharing words of wisdom um, the Europeans um, yeah, did not hear that they did not hear the local um, or North African Arabic uh, phrase like uh, the um, statement that they used to say salt comes from the north gold comes from the south and silver from the country of the white men but the word of God and the treasures of wisdom are only to be found in Timbuktu huh. um, they did not hear that what they yep. heard was the thing about the gold. Um, yeah. And it was originally trans- like, written in Italian. And then um, Leo Africanus' work then got spread. Uh, and eventually, like 50 years later, was translated into other European languages. Um, and they basically thought that he was describing a mythical, magical place full of unicorns. Um, sure. Where they thought that Prester John lived there. So I don't know if I've... Have we ever talked about Prester John? I don't um, think so.
0: I mean we might have I have a very bad memory, but <laughs> I don't
1: is a um crusades myth that there was beyond the beyond the East, like basically where Eurasia is, um, <laughs> that there was a secret Christian uh or a lost Christian land. And sure that during the Crusades there would be occasional rumours that Prester John, the great leader of these Christian lands, was going to come out and um, attack the uh, Islamic armies from from the east.
0: Right, sure. Um,
1: There's a theory that um, these were based on stories that people had heard about Genghis Khan... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, wow. the Mongols, which is that I they I cannot were... imagine Genghis
0: Khan coming out to help the English.
1: <laughs> no, um, but he definitely did uh, put a halt to the Islamic Empire. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. Um, anyway, so they thought that... Presto John lived there, a person that never existed. They thought mm-hmm. that the... They heard all this stuff about the gold and they drew up imaginary worlds where the streets were literally paved with gold and everybody had gemstones on their shoes. It's amazing um, how often we do this. This is like a proto-Eldorado situation. Yeah. It says exactly what it is. An elder, Timbuktu becomes the African Eldorado. Mm-hmm. Um, it stops being this city that is full of scholars. Um, according to al-Hassan, um, who was, as I say, the scholar who... Um, travelled through
0: Um, Mm
1: -hmm. it had 100,000 people um, of which a quarter were scholars and students who had (laughs) travelled from across in order to study there Um, and they forget all about that and focus entirely on the gold situation and it becomes in um, the imagination of the Europeans the African El Dorado, except it actually exists unlike El Dorado yeah that is like this 100 glorious years of um, peace and people pumping money into having personal libraries and copyists and some of the manuscripts that still exist have this um, like copyright page at the back Um <laughs> so like the version of a copyright page that we have at the beginning of books where it describes and names all of the people who are involved in the um production of the books. So um you have the if the person who translated it, the person who copied it, and then proofreaders um (laughs) who also got a cut of everything, um, and the calligrapher who did the um like the design work because obviously they're all illuminated basically. You're not gonna spend lots of money on something that's ugly.
0: Um
1: What they didn't have, they had very high quality paper, which is why so much of many of them have survived so well. Um, Mm -hmm. Largely that paper, actually, some of it came from Morocco, but largely it came from Venice. Um, Oh, wow. uh, Again, Venetians, no idea where that is going. (laughs) have not thought about it I do not care Um, but they knew enough that it was going into the Islamic world because they um, they originally Venetians were printing paper that had crosses on it Um, Mm -hmm. so when they were making paper they were putting crosses on it but that wouldn't sell Uh. Uh, so they had to stop (laughs) (laughs) Um, which is delightful. Anyway, so they have a lovely um hundred years of nice scholarship and learning, which kind of peaks with Ahmed Baba. Um mm-hmm. and then 1591 you get this um invasion into by the Moroccans who decide that they want it. Um the Moroccans take Timbuktu, but they want it for its glories. So they keep it in and continue that scholarly tradition. Mm-hmm. But as a jewel in the empire rather than as the center of everything. So, right. whereas the ASCII were like, this is the most important thing about us, they're like, this is the thing we stole and we like it very much. Um, right. Yeah. Um, and that continued until Christ. <laughs> <laughs> Livia just fell right off the <laughs> <laughs> Oh, baby, how did you do that? Um, anyway,
0: animals are conspiring they're in a competition to cause the most disruption possible (laughs) they really are she
1: just rolled over and rolled right off the desk oh no, is she okay? (laughs) she is fine, she's one off in humiliation (laughs) (laughs) Uh, right Um, so the scholarly tradition that tradition of it being a place of learning where scholars come continues for another 200 years um, and uh, is very successful um but not in the same glorious way uh until what happens in 17th century um is there is a sufi reformer movement in the niger delta um Mm -hmm. the inner niger delta so in other parts of what is now mali um that uh, is very similar to um jihadi movements that we see today like incredibly narrow interpretation of islam a very mm-hmm. very um conservative interpretation of what is allowed and what is haram um mm-hmm. and these is obviously
0: not something that just happens in islam it's religious fundali- fundamentalism yeah
1: it is a re- very, yeah. Uh, yeah, but it is a, um, a reformer movement that um, comes out of the uh, inner Niger Delta and mm-hmm. then makes its way, they make their way across, like segregating genders, burning alcohol, banning mm-hmm. tobacco, burning any manuscript that they find which is um, about anything that isn't the Quran, um, destroying mosques that they consider to be too ostentatious. Um, Mm -hmm. destroying anything that looks like a figure of human like basically they rampage through um, Timbuktu and destroy a lot of books Mm -hmm. Um, and they like literally are searching for um, and destroying books but the people of Timbuktu are so dedicated to um, their scholarship and to their collection and the belief that they are protectors of this knowledge Um, Mm. that they just find ways to hide it, basically. And they hide a lot and protect a lot, and it's genuinely impressive. Um, Hundreds of thousands still exist Mm -hmm. of manuscripts, and there's, like, loads of work being done on them at the moment. Um, And largely because the people, as people rampage through, and this is not the first or the last time that anyone tried to burn everything, um, they hid them really, really well. Yeah. Um, And then uh that kind of takes the shine off of timbuktu a lot um but what happens is that then the europeans come ah oh, this is going to be fun <laughs> Beginning with uh, the Germans, a a guy called Heinrich Barth is the first person to show up in Timbuktu. Um, Mm -hmm. They immediately try to kill him because he is a non-Muslim and the rulers at the time don't want non-Muslims anywhere near them. But they are persuaded out of it by a scholar, um, Mm -hmm. which is foolish. They definitely should have. He comes back and writes very insultingly about them, basically saying that they have like a limited curiosity in language and they have they are um he says that they're very attached to their books um in and yet they have limited curiosity and knowledge. <laughs> he su- writes about them in this like they're very attached to their books in the way that you might describe a child being very attached to like their blankie <laughs> Not Jesus. like they are scholars and they are really protective of the work that they do, or they are academics and they have experienced century of people trying to um, burn their books. Yeah. Or they know that these are fragile. They are incredibly fragile. Um Yeah. The, and they don't want people touching them. No, they're very attached to the manuscripts. Um, isn't it adorable? Isn't it adorable, basically. Um, and But also they have gold. Um, and then he goes back uh, because they allow him to survive. And then in 1883, the French arrive
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, and do the thing that Europeans do, which is occupy Timbuktu loot everything that they can, steal (laughs) as much as they can and send it back to France um, and attempt as hard as they can to eradicate all local languages and the speaking and writing of Arabic um, and the forced conversion of people to speaking French and Christians, which um, separates people from the ability to read the manuscripts that they have. Classic. Um, Yes that is the by far the most destructive thing Mm. that happens. A lot of Islamic scholarship particularly in Timbuktu is about memorization Mm. um, and um, memorization and conversation with texts Um, and when you look through um, the um, lists of people who have been written about like the scholars that Um, are listed memorization and the ability to memorise and recite is um, considered to be like a God given uh, talent Mm, Um, so where previous people had gone through it was possible to rewrite things um, and to reproduce manuscripts um, and to then kind of you know and everything wasn't lost but when the French came they did everything in their power to eradicate what had existed yeah um thankfully they did not succeed (laughs) and in the um the libraries existed in people's houses and were hidden and were um protected and because so much of it was in personal houses rather than being in one big library it was possible for people to hide Mm -hmm. them in chests and hide them in basements and hide them in walls and attics um yeah
0: a lot harder to destroy things yeah if it's not
1: one place um and in the post-colonial era um there were a lot of efforts to basically start collecting them together there is a really great book called the badass librarians of timbuktu um which Mm -hmm. specifically um, focuses on a guy called abdul hadera um who is amazing (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um he inherited his job from his dad. He is a member of one of these great families of Timbuktu, like incredibly ancient mm-hmm. um families that um had been collecting manuscripts and have been part of this tradition of uh, collecting and producing and scholarship in Mali mm-hmm. for hundreds and hundreds of years. Um his dad worked at um the library um, in Timbuktu. It's called the um Mama Hadera Library. Um mm-hmm. and when his dad died he inherited his dad's position, basically. Um sure. and his dad was born in eighteen ninety seven, um, which is <laughs> the earliest years of French colonialism, which started in eighteen eighty three. Um so mm-hmm. he is just the second generation out from colonial uh from colonial africa so this is not like the ancient past by any stretch of the imagination um and his family had been part of the manuscript collecting and scholarship tradition since like the 15th 16th century and they had this huge library um and his father had spent his life um adding to that library basically secretly um collecting Mm -hmm. as many manuscripts from around west africa as he possibly could um, and then he died and his, um, his son took over reluctantly he was like I wanted to be a businessman but they made me be a librarian <laughs> <laughs> um, and he writes in this well he talks in this book about his life which was basically going around um, families in Mali um, and literally going to individual people's houses and desperately trying to persuade people to let him look at their stashes of manuscripts. Um, And because of the years of jihadi rule and then the years of French rule, um, so many of them would pretend that they didn't have any manuscripts um, and would say that they didn't know what he was talking about. And he would go back and go back and go back. Um, And eventually Mm -hmm. they would say, "Mm, maybe. Um, And he has spent his entire life persuading people to let him look at... The boxes and boxes of paper that they have (laughs) um and then trying to persuade them to (laughs) let him buy them um and he works with um weirdly uh i say weirdly it's not that weird um saudi arabia um and charities in saudi arabia pay a lot of money to rescue this stuff um Mm -hmm. and he spent years and years persuading people to to give him their incredibly sacred manuscripts that are their family's tradition that they have had hidden for a hundred years um mm-hmm. and then in twenty twelve um there was another wave of um extremist uh fundamentalist mm-hmm. um militancy jihadi activity which swept across yeah. Mali. We talk about ISIS a lot um, but there is another, uh, there are a lot of offshoots of um, that movement uh, one of which is Al-Qaeda yeah. in the Islamic Maghreb. and um, which was a massive terrorist group which seized northern Mali um, in 2012 um, and did the exact same thing that their predecessors had done, which was attempt to destroy anything which existed, which they considered to be mm-hmm. harem, which included all history. Um, <laughs> um, which is a shame, really. History is as big as Yes, keep... so they attempted to destroy... Um, the story actually that I really recommend The Badass Librarians it's a very good book Um, but he talks about both his entire world collapsing in just a matter of months like he's living in a perfectly happy stable world living his life talking to people trying to persuade them to give up their ancient manuscripts um, and negotiating Mm -hmm. the purchase of ancient manuscripts and hunting them down and then reading them um, and learning lots about the 15th century when all of a sudden the jihadis like literally just arrive and completely destroy his entire life. And then they start to really try to destroy his entire life. And the book is absolutely full of all of these close encounters where he is, suddenly people are approaching him saying, we need you to get these manuscripts to a place of safety. I've got 10 chunks of manuscripts and I need you to protect Mm them. Um, And he starts running with his family a... um, an underground railroad for manuscripts um getting them out of marley uh that's amazing yeah. um and that's what the book is about is about his efforts, which involve him having like um like face to face encounters with people who are like what's in the box, and he's like, uh, <laughs> nothing um he rescued three hundred and fifty thousand manuscripts holy um, shit that's that is impressive yeah. and that's just what survives like um that's considered yeah. a tiny percentage of what was existing in timbuktu so in 2012 there are 45 different libraries in timbuktu that he managed to and like private people that he managed to rescue 350,000 manuscripts um and get them to babako mm-hmm. um where he has now set up a um a library for the study of them where once again people are coming from all over the world from and now from europe and the usa as well to study and preserve and um see what is in there because a lot of this stuff has been hidden in people's attics and basements um yeah for for, yeah 200 years um and yeah he's amazing um, he deserves, like, a yeah. Nobel Peace Prize or something because he really... And the pictures... I will put a pic... This um, article... The guy who wrote the book, is called Joshua Hammer, also wrote an article for National Geographic, which has all of these pictures of him surrounded by these um, metal boxes uh, of <laughs> books. And they're not bound. So for whatever reason, um, the concept of gluing and binding never really took off so most mm-hmm. of them are just tied um within uh like they're wrapped in leather and then tied up um yeah. like the kind of you know like the kind of leather notebook that everybody everybody who wants to be a writer bought at some point um
0: yeah where it's got like a leather thong around it yeah exactly all, like that yeah
1: um but incredibly beautiful calligraphy instead of random jottings like <laughs> a book about a murder, question mark. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so that will be in the show notes because they're, they're really amazing pictures. Um, and that is kind of where we are with Timbuktu at the moment. His ambition, Hadera's ambition eventually is to be able to return all this stuff to Timbuktu and take mm-hmm. back those uh, personal libraries that people have and um restore Timbuktu to its rightful place as a um as a part of the intellectual heritage of the world as a part as a place for learning and scholars and ancient manuscripts to and for Mm. people to go to talk about difficult questions of history and jurisprudence and whether it's ethical to smoke
0: yeah is it like is he working on digitizing the Manuscripts, or is he mainly concerned with preserving? The physical he is copies?
1: primarily concerned with preservation because they are all largely fallen to bits. Um, mm. but I believe that there are digitization efforts. There's various different people who work on them now. Um, yeah, and there are lots of um, UNESCO turned um, Timbuktu into a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Um, so they have <laughs> that kind of money as well. But his um, his main focus is preservation for study really um yeah. which is like he his main care in life is worrying about those <laughs> um yeah i will also say that um the way that timbuktu is largely written about in um european uh writing is mm-hmm. here's here's two titles of books uh Timbuktu the Sahara's fabled city of gold Uh which I don't recommend because it made little to no sense it might don't know if it's a translation issue because that was originally written in French but it was genuinely baffling um and one (laughs) called the race for Timbuktu which was a um story of two European quote-unquote explorers Mm -hmm. um who were incentivized by the British Geographical Society to find the lost city of gold, um the El Euro- the yeah El Dorado of Africa. Um and their hunt basically through the Sahara to find Timbuktu, a place where a hundred thousand people were living. Yeah. Um but it was <laughs> lost um and they needed to discover it. Um and it yes. is told exactly like those stories of um like scott in the uh, antarctic um right like, sure these um, brave
0: european adventurers who are gonna
1: they're brave european adventurers go trying desperately to find something that no one has ever seen before apart from all the people who were there
0: <laughs> and have been there for a really long time and have
1: been there living their lives for a really really long time <laughs> um and then the discovery of it discovery quote unquote is treated as this like marvelous thing and they're rewarded and obviously they get to keep all the spoils um and yeah. they get also given a prize by the geographical society um and it's like oh great uh you just yeah. basically destroyed these people <laughs> um wish you hadn't bothered actually um yeah and that's that's timbuktu the great um place of learning it is the most famous but by far not the only place in um africa i don't want it to seem like there is only one um like one place where people hung out and did um and did work. work yeah there's yeah. loads of places um that mauritania there's loads in mauritania um, Walata, Chinguetti, and Tishit all have loads of libraries. Um, but mm-hmm. also like Senegal and Chad and, um, Niger and Nigeria and lots of places and Ghana where there are li- like libraries and s- cities of scholarship. Um, that yeah. are outside the Malian Empire or the Songhai Empire. Um, and it's just that, um, the work that has been done to bring them to the attention and to make it clear that they exist uh, to Europeans has been limited by the fact that Europeans tried to eradicate them.
0: Yeah, that does kind of
1: ruin things. And write very happily about the fact that they did not exist. Um, just by sheer coincidence last night, I also read an article called Africa Writes Back about um, the ancient scripts of Africa and... Um, uh, which I'll also put in the show notes, um, and how European ideas of what literacy is um, have mm-hmm. completely destroyed everything. Oh. Europe was a mistake. Shouldn't Europe was it. a mistake and shouldn't have been allowed to do anything. No. But that's two Part 2 It sounds great. Uh, people sounds... still write about it as though it is a filthy backwater that no person lives in. Yeah. Um. Naturally. Naturally. Because
0: we just do not learn our lessons. No.
1: Well, we exist within that terrible lesson. Um, Yeah. uh, The terrible lesson is that we... the colonial stories that Europeans told themselves in order to make themselves feel brilliant about the fact that they were destroying an entire continent um, and all of the many multifarious cultures that existed within that continent was that none of those cultures existed. And because they then said they didn't exist and then destroyed them, they now kind of it's really hard to find traces of them um, and they yeah. never told us about them and the histories that we learn in school and in all of the stories that we're told on tv do not include them um and you have to go and spend a lot of time hunting them out
0: um yeah in order to find anything at all uh what are we going to talk about next time
1: next time we are going light and happy um, yeah. This question, here comes from Tom Hepworth? He emailed us a few, but we chose this one. What are the greatest great escapes in history, such as climbing out of towers on bedsheets, etc.? That's going to be very fun. It there is some good be ones. Fun. So we're going to talk about some great escapes um, and our favourite great escapes, and um, what kind of things people escape from. Will involve kings climbing out of towers.
0: Absolutely will. <laughs> oh my excited. god
1: we're gonna talk about charles ii <sighs> yeah i'm definitely talking about charles ii um yeah yeah uh, and that that's it i think um i think it is where can we be found we can be found at
0: history60.com which has links to our ko-fi where you can support us as one-off or you can support us monthly there as well if you would like to and thank you very much to everyone who has. Yes. Um, it also has links to our Twitter and um, where you can buy some
1: t shirts if you want to. And everything, basically. Yeah. Everything is there. You can send us a question. You can look at the show notes, they're all on there. Um, and read these articles, or the books, because they're good. And um, yeah, that's about it. Yeah. All right. Excellent. Bye, Chidi and Janina. <laughs> Bye, Emma and Livia. <laughs> Bye. Bye.